When the economy collapsed a few years ago, it nearly took a big chunk of the U.S. auto industry with it. But these days, everything is rosy. Or is it? Coming up next on AutoLine This Week. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. Thanks for joining us on AutoLine This Week. You know, back in 2009, the U.S. automotive industry collapsed completely. General Motors and Chrysler went bankrupt. In fact, so did a whole bunch of suppliers. Here we are eight years later. What's the status of the industry? Has it learned its lessons? Has it come back? I've got three experts to talk about where this industry stands today, all from the Center for Automotive Research in Ann Arbor, including Dave Andrea, the Executive Vice President of Research. Brett Smith is the Co-Director for Manufacturing, Engineering, and Technology. Bernard Sawicki is a senior automotive analyst with the CAR, Center for Automotive Research. David, let me start with you. Here we are, from the big collapse, as I like to call it, yeah. to today. Where do you think the industry stands? Well, I would make a case that throughout all the other cycles, we, we made minor adjustments, but through 2009, there were major structural changes in the industry that remain today. So looking at the capital structure, as you mentioned, it wasn't just about for our GM and Chrysler going through their bankruptcy. It was about through all the suppliers. So that's been restructured. The industry's in a better position going forward that way. Workforce has changed dramatically in terms of the workforce structure. And then as well, globalization uh, takes a whole nother element uh, to the industry now that I don't think we can just take our models of what we had from yesteryear and apply them going forward. It really is a different industry. Brett, how do you see it? I think, I think the industry has done a great job of adapting. It, it clearly, from the outside, it looked like a little bit of a change. I think as consumers back then knew there was change going on, but they went to the same dealerships, they got the same kind of cars. Fundamentally, this industry did change. It's a big change, but I think over the next five to 10 years, it's gonna change as much for the consumers as it did for the industry in, in 2008, I think we're going through a period where, yes, there was great change inside, but I think now we're going to see great change outside with the product. Yeah, and I'll, we'll want to get into more details on that, but Bernard, I want to get your input on this too. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, so I think we're starting at this point now to ask, are we at the brink of another downturn? Uh, and I would say the industry at this particular point looks a lot more healthy than the industry prior to the previous downturn because uh, we have perhaps similar volumes in terms of sales, and we, we just uh, set a record last year, uh, but we're not using artificial means like the incentives and other things that we had to push that forward. Uh, we're not reliant on a bubble, in, in, in the uh, previous case, the, a housing bubble, to propel our sales for us. Uh, we don't have an overcapacity situation the way that we did before. Uh, so um, my belief is this is not an illusion that we've actually got some very, very solid fundamentals uh, backing us up in this current pros prosperous uh, element that we have in the industry. David, of course, if you go back eight years ago, we heard so much about legacy costs. We heard so much about bad practices. Uh, Bernard just touched on one of them, you know, massive incentives to move product. But we had a jobs bank that was costing the domestic automakers a couple of billion dollars a year to pay people not to work. Uh, we had a whole uh, number of other legacy costs, too. I guess my question now is, what's the strength of the U.S. industry? How does it stack up against Europe, Korea, Japan, and China? Sure. Well, along those lines, all of those points that you just went through, 
we've taken all those excuses of, away. So now the industry really does have to perform mm -hmm. on its merit. And that's where everyone is saying we almost have to go through a downturn to prove that the industry has changed that way. To Bernard's point, looking at the headroom that we have on break-even points, because of the restructuring, the um, fixed cost structure has gone away in the industry so much that going into a possible downturn now, we probably have a 20% um, headroom in terms of what volumes can, can go down for the overall industry. Now that's going to point to certain companies could fail and, and get us into trouble that way, but we have a great, great um, headroom that way. In terms of if you look on across the, all the regions, there has been great attention, I think more so, on, on the restructuring here in North America. But again, again, I get to, on terms of the decision making and where we, we're at here today, look at um, Ford and General Motors making the decision to pull out of Australia. To me, that was a major choice. If we were in just a typical upturn, volumes would have hid those, those, those issues away. But we're still making hard decisions in the industry. And Brett, you look at it from a manufacturing, engineering, technology standpoint, where does the U.S. industry, and, and by the way, I, I wouldn't just say General Motors, Ford, and Fiat Chrysler. You know, we've got uh, the Japanese in here, we've got the, the Europeans, the Koreans in here uh, with substantial engineering and manufacturing, not just uh, retail sales. So I, I sort of lump it all together. So I can go back to Dave and, yeah. and it, talk a little bit about how the outsiders view the industry as we need to go through that, that recession, that downturn. I think Wall Street really looks at it and says, yes, you've done all these things, but we're still not giving you credit for them. The next challenge becomes pr proving your point. I think with technology, that, that's also the case. There's, there's a lot of things out there that, that this country, the companies in this country do well, and there's a lot of investment from overseas in this country for technology. Um, it's yet we, we haven't delivered maybe on some of that as much as maybe people expect and, and hope for. I think over the next couple of years, as we see some of these technologies that are in, in the startup stage, whether it be a Tesla startup stage or whether it be the U.S. car company startup stage where you're getting these new technologies out there, that's going to be fascinating to see if, if, in fact, we can deliver on those. And, and there's a lot of great technology in this country, but I think it's really, at this point, it's global. It's, it's all these companies operate on a global basis. Volkswagen has a very good R&D center in this country. Um, it's a global company. General Motors, same thing. It's, it's not this country versus other countries, in a sense, anymore. This industry is truly a global industry. It's truly global, uh, Bernard, but I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of Will the U.S. keep its automotive industry? Man, you know, we, we see so much manufacturing capacity going into Mexico, even more going into China. Going forward, will the U.S. be able to be competitive having its own domestic industry? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt. Uh, it's just a question of staying competitive. Um, but if you look back, we were always an international industry. I think now you can actually use the word global in terms of... Describe the difference. What do well, you mean? You know, it's in terms of how the U.S. fits, because for so long, we were an anomaly, okay, in terms of buying different uh, products than the rest of the world did, but we were too profitable to ignore. Uh, and so we could kind of get away with that where a market like Australia uh, previously could not. Um, but now we're a little bit different, and I think that's also happening with uh, CAFE. Uh, in terms of consumer preferences, the regulatory environment, and so on, I think we're more of a fit. Uh, and so, one, we're a better fit for the international industry to play here in terms of their products find a better home here. Uh, but it also goes the other way. So for the domestic automakers, uh, Alan Mulally's one Ford strategy makes more sense in this environment. GM sharing platforms, 
you know, with their uh, Korean enterprises and European, FCA working with Chrysler, to, uh, well, Fiat working with Chrysler to become FCA, you know, all of this now kind of plays uh, globally. Uh, so I think that the fact that the U.S. is no longer the island that it used to be will have profound implications. And, and, and a greater export base as well for both vehicles as well as parts. And, yeah, and John, I agree with Bernard, except for the point that we still are driven profit-wise entirely by one product line. Trucks. Pickup mm -hmm. trucks. And those don't And SUVs sell. and crossovers, though. Yeah, I would, yeah, I would yeah, lump them in. Crossovers of... But the, yes, but the big trucks. And that, that does not translate well to international markets. But in terms of a, a product portfolio that works much better on a global basis, yes, Ford, General Motors, and, and FCA are, are all getting much better at, at that kind of that global portfolio. They still do, and I, I think mm -hmm. it's a good thing in this case, they still do make a ton of money on their mm -hmm. truck lines, but, and no one else does. Mm -hmm. John, as you were saying, will we keep the, U the auto industry in the U.S.? Yes, but it will be a completely different industry and a different reference point. So even mm -hmm. as you talk about the SUVs here, look at BMW, right, that is investing so much in the United States. Exclusive mm -hmm. products here, SUVs mm -hmm. for the most part, mm -hmm. that they serve the U.S. market with and then export out around the world. Okay, so we went through the big collapse, the Great mm -hmm. Recession, the bankruptcies, the restructurings. Here we are eight years later, we're running at all-time record sales, all-time record levels of production. But you're hinting at mm, going forward might be tough. David, what do you think are some of the biggest threats facing the industry now? Well, you always get to that you return to trend, right? The thing, though, is we, we, we've taken so long to get here that it hasn't been the slingshot type of recovery. That, I think, plays in, in our favor. Um, but without a doubt, you get through pent-up demand and you start to slow down in, in sales. I think the biggest risk, in, more so than a unit sale um, drop-off, is what is the mix change? So do truck sales drop off more if, if customers start to feel on the credit pinch and on the economy slowing down, will they go to a, a um, lesser price of, of a mix of the vehicle? And then that dampens revenue, and then that spreads down through the supply chain. Brett, what do you think are the biggest threats facing the industry? I, th I think that, that profit per vehicle is, is always going to be very important, and I think that's, they've done a good job with that. I also think that the cost of the vehicle itself is getting so high. I mean, right now you're talking $32,000, $33,000 per average vehicle transaction. That's really expensive. You're limiting the market the more expensive it gets. And as we've talked over the years, regulation is going to make that happen even more so, whether it be powertrain technology, whether it be connected automated technology, safety technology, and you know the one that consumers will pay for, the stuff they want. You're going to see vehicles get more and more expensive. Um, the challenge becomes, are you disciplined enough to keep that price point for the vehicle manufacturers? Are you going to start putting money on the hood of the vehicle to make sales so you can keep the plant going? Or have we, in fact, gotten to a disciplined point, as Bernard talked about? Yeah. And, and on the credit, credit side, right, we've been living in this environment of such low cost of capital with our low interest rates. And so we've refinanced both the, the consumer and the corporations. So as you look out a couple of years and you look at a, a um, a fall off of when will that debt need to be restructured and, and paid back, and that's a real threat. Hmm. And Bernard, your thoughts, greatest threats facing the industry yeah, you right know, now. So I'd build a little bit about, uh, on, onto what Brad said, which I think is absolutely correct, um, because at the same time that is happening, uh, we've also got 
a, an, an uncertain economic environment. So when we passed CAFE back in 2009, we've had a ramp up in terms of adding vehicle technologies at a time when a market's growing and the economy <clears throat> excuse me, is solid. What happens now if we have an acceleration of standards, an acceleration of expensive technology to put on the vehicle and the economy goes soft on us, right? And we're in that environment trying to sell that expensive vehicle. So the forecastable parts uh, that we're looking at all look good. It's a question of what's out there that we can't have visibility into. So do you care to forecast here? Are, are we at the crest right now? Is, to, is this year going to be the, the peak of the market? David, uh, you've got a great background in economics. What do you say? And I think we have a, still some additional volume to get in, in the industry that way. Again, I get back to from the financing side, looking at leasing, all those types of things right now. But it, eventually the piper has to be paid on, on all that. And so it will slow down. So I think it's a couple more years of year over year, or at least flat before we turn down. And then I would, I would go for a more moderate turn down than a drastic drop off. So even a moderate downturn can be pretty good, right? I mean, if we're running, let's say, 17.7 million or 17.5, so what if it drops down to 17 or 16.5? But picking up on what Brett and Bernard have both pointed out on how rapidly the product is going to be changing, and there is an uncertain mm -hmm. environment on the consumer side, it can st it, and, and it's a dogfight out there then <laughs> in terms of, of, of the fight for market share. Yep. And that's where the margins can drop. Mm -hmm. So I will take, John, a very different angle on this. After 28 years in the business, we've seen a couple cycles go through here. For me, it's, it's not an economic, it's, it's a product thing. We know that as you come out of a recession, you start to do the products you must do. You have to do. As you get further out of that recession, you start to do some, some good products, some that are good for the portfolio, but not. By the time you get to the end of the, end of the, uh, the uptick, uptick of the good market, you're doing really great, cool cars. And there's a lot of really great, cool cars that are coming out over the last year or so or next year or so. That fun cars, you're saying, cars. just fun cars. Uh, fun cars that are convertibles, convertibles performance, all that. Performance GTs, just wonderful mm -hmm. or vehicles that you look at and say, that is, that is why we're in this industry. We love it. Oh, wait a second. If we got the money to do that, we may be at the end of the cycle. <laughs> That's, again, totally That's the best bad. leading indicator I've ever heard of. That to me is just absolutely unprovable, but yes. Well, yeah, if you also uh, look at the consumer, if the consumer is able to afford those products, you know, quite, uh, quite often, uh, that's because that consumer is indebted to a very high degree uh, or otherwise kind of at a risky position. And so that gives me pause, not necessarily about next year or two years down the road, but three, four, five years down the road. Because we do talk about uh, the record levels of debt that consumers are taking to buy vehicles today. And today, in a way, that's great. You know, that's more revenue for the industry, not just the car company, but suppliers who supply most of the value of that vehicle, that does go down to them. Mm -hmm. um, but when that consumer trades that vehicle in three, four, five years down the road, and they find out that they're maybe not even just uh, uh, not getting the equity that they expected, they're upside down. Quite often, the solution is to roll that debt into your new loan, except five years from now, that vehicle will be much more expensive because of the technology that we're mandated to put on it. Mm -hmm. So I wonder to what degree we're exacerbating this situation that there's a piper to be paid for our current situation right now. Mm -hmm. You were gonna add, right? I was gonna say, and as Dave pointed out, interest rates could go up, could go down. If they're, mm -hmm. if they're much higher, you've got a higher loan rate, you've got less 
availability. Yeah. yeah, I think what would be interesting, just like the Federal Reserve has mandated the stress tests on the commercial banks, we should take a stress test of looking at the vehicle manufacturers, the suppliers, mm -hmm. looking at the consumers, all of these different elements to see what, what levers could um, get pulled in the wrong direction and how have we really restructured, have we learned our lessons from the, from the previous um, cycles to be able to take a 5, 10, and 15 percent unit reduction. But as Sean Mackland and our, our chief economist always points out, it's not just units, it really is looking at the price and the revenue mm -hmm. side of, of, of the industry. And that's what I think we should apply a stress test yeah, to the at, at the end of the day, it's really all about making money that's right. or not. And, 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 and these responses are from people who have been in this business a while watching it. And, <laughs> and we'd love to be really optimistic, but somehow in the auto industry, we tend to be pessimistic. Mm -hmm. It's just our nature because we've seen so many cycles. Okay, well, let's get away from the pessimistic mm -hmm. threats to the industry side. What are the upside potentials here going forward? You know, Brett had mentioned we're going to see so much change in the next five to ten years. David, what do you think well, is going to drive that change? Well, the change is, is around the ownership models that, that are, are um, creeping in here, looking at whether it's ride hailing or, or car sharing that way. We've actually at, at CAR have, have done research on that, our transportation systems analysis group. And actually in the U.S., as we look at all the consumer surveys, we don't think that that um, shared new, new um, ownership um, uh, models will uh, cut uh, um, volumes that much on an annual basis, but it really pushes the industry on how do these vehicles get used and equipped, and again, for the supplier content on that. Hmm. Brett, your thoughts. What, what, what are the opportunities out there for the industry? I think. Again, optimistically, I think that the product is going to change so drastically over the next five to ten years that it's, it's going to be almost unrecognizable. The, the product being cars product and trucks and, and all trucks, that. Yeah. I think. It's, it's the, whether it's electrification or fuel cell technology, that's still to be determined, or a really good gasoline engine. But you throw on top of that the connected vehicle, the automated vehicle stuff. People talk about um, 10 or 15 years out before government will really let you do an automated vehicle on the roads, but the technology is becoming so quickly. It, it's not at the pace of automotive anymore, it's at the pace of electronics, which is gonna be a real challenge for this industry and for the government and for consumers, but it's gonna be fun to watch. I totally agree. It is, it's already fun to watch. It it's, it's, it's already started. Yeah. Bernard, your thoughts, opportunities. Yeah, you bet. You know, so within the industry, we've known for a long time about how we're improving our products. And you know, we brag to ourselves and each other about all the things we've done, and we've been frustrated that it's not reaching the consumer, you know, that it's not really capturing their imagination. And so I think we are at that point now when we're talking about autonomous, connected vehicles. If you look at uh, Elon Musk and, and how he's captured the public imagination, you know, I think now we're kind of at the point where we're going to get some of those cool points, where we're now no longer selling what is an appliance to a larger chunk of the population than we usually like to admit to ourselves is the case. Uh, and I think as that happens, uh, you do have an option to perhaps charge more for these products and to make them feel like, yes, there is reason to replace, that yes, it is notably different in ways that the consumer notices and not just we within the industry can appreciate. And, and on the consumer front, looking at the announcements that Amazon has made going into the retail space, and you can make an argument for or against if they'll be successful that way, but you know, you know that all the other traditional players in that space are going to respond to an Amazon.
And so that's how this, the competitive ante keeps increasing day in and day out. I go back to 2008 and nine and that change. For the consumer, they understood that the industry went through a dramatic change, but that product didn't change. In 2025, there may be totally different players that are running this industry or that are involved in this industry. And not just as a, we're going to kind of get in and see, but we're running this industry. Well, let's talk a bit about that because Mark Fields, the CEO of the Ford Motor Company, has said if you add up all the revenue that all the car companies in the world generate in one year, it comes to, I think he says, $2.3 trillion, a staggering amount of money. But when you look at what people spend on their mobility, on trains and buses and Ubers and what have you, he says it's about twice that, about $5.4 trillion. Do you buy it? Is this the new opportunity for the industry to get into mobility services? Well, if you look at it, because it's both it's pass, passenger mobility. The other piece I think we have to start talking more about is, is on the commercial vehicle side and, and looking at freight mobility in there as well for the connected vehicles and all that, because that's where it really opens up multiple markets. I think the interesting thing for me in looking at going back to the late 1980s and the, and the um, or 1990s and the internet uh, bubble that was going on right there, the car companies were all looking at trying to get out of the auto industry, mm -hmm. right? And looking at all the investments around it, all these different internet ventures. This time around though, they understand where they make their money and how they can make more money and so they're trying to integrate those, those internet services into the product. And that's what I think is different this time around. We're not running away from the industry. We're running to where the core product in it is. And, and that's a different mindset. Hmm. Brett, your thoughts? Yeah, I remember Jack Nasser, I believe, talking about... Jack, a, pre, a previous CEO of Ford, right? Yes, thank you. Um, talking about the, the, the opportunity beyond manufacturing the car, and it was a totally different opportunity. But it was, again, that same idea. We're not making enough money here. We've got to go elsewhere. This does tie things together very well. But it also ties together very well using other people's strengths, things that our industry doesn't necessarily have strength in. Will you be the winner in that? Well, you make the product, so that's really important. But there's a whole lot else going on there. And is it short-term, mid-term, or long-term? I, I don't, it's, again, I go back and, it's going to be a real fun time to watch. It may be a tough time to be in the business, but it's going to be fun to watch. Bernard, your thoughts. I mean, I, what Brett's bringing up here is very interesting, and he's right. Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley's all over this industry right now. You know, five years ago, the electronics industry could give a hoot about automotive. Now they're, they're in deep. Uh, are the traditional automakers going to lose the business to the new guys? Well, you know, we've always had this conversation about what's a core competency for an automaker. You know, are you an integrator? Are you a, an engine maker where, you know, the rest of the car is just the packaging in which you sell your product? Uh, so it's not a new battle for the industry to fight. Um, you know, and I think it's going to come down to what's important to the consumer. And, uh, and I've heard uh, arguments on both sides of the equation that once we have an autonomous vehicle, really none of what makes it go in terms of steering, brakes, and so on will matter. That's all commoditized. And that, unfortunately, is what we do very well in automotive. So the logic is to get away from that and look at the, uh, the things that make the difference. I've also heard the argument that, no, if you're no longer driving, you notice so much more of what the vehicle is doing in terms of you know, how does it go over bumps and, and so on, that that will actually uh, turn out to be a priority. Uh, but I think you know, the key will be to find out which parts will be really noticeable to the consumer and make sure that we keep as much of that in the industry as possible. John, you mentioned 
so many or so much interest from Silicon Valley. I know so many engineers over the last two years that have moved to Silicon Valley to work, usually for a startup or someone else, but occasionally for one of the traditional car companies. Some of them move back, but it is it is fascinating over the last couple of years how really viable that model has become. Two or three years ago, wasn't even a consideration for Detroit. I think the, the European luxury makers have looked at that two years ago and said, we're not, we're not worried about them. They're now very worried about that model. And, and you know about the, the Silicon Valley the Silicon model. model. And, and trying to implement that into their structure back in the, in the homeland. But um, it's, again, really a fundamental change in this industry. Yeah. And going back, John, as you were talking about all of those forms of mobility for, for personal transportation here, I think it's important for two, two um, reasons. First is, is that if we look at putting public dollars into public transportation, we're not putting all of the, problem, or, um, the solutions on emissions and fuel economy things on the back of the new vehicle buyer. So I think we're looking at it more holistically that way. The other thing is, is there's going to be 10 different solutions that are in here as well, because as you look at commute patterns and those mm -hmm. types of things here, the individual motor vehicle still, at least the way our cities and, and culture has, has evolved here in the U.S., not imposing that on the rest of the world, the motor vehicle still gives you the most productivity and looking at flexibility, and those are the those are the um, issues that we have to have in this argument. Mm -hmm. So, Brett, uh, your prediction. Uh, are we going to see a change in the, the ownership model? We're going to buy mobility instead of cars. And we're, we're kind of down to yep, the end here, too. So, so I think it's, for years, a former boss of mine used to walk around, or go around saying, we're in a time of unprecedented change. And he said that for 15 or 20 years. And he was, he was right to an extent. <laughs> but I will tell you, I, I believe we are in a point of unprecedented change. And Yes, those models are going to happen. There are going to be a lot of them that fail, but there are going to be some that work. No, I agree with you guys. I think this is a fascinating discussion to see where the industry's come in the last decade, where it's going in the next decade. I, I, I'm kind of of the opinion with all this mobility services, we're, we're kind of like in the year 1900 when the, the horseless carriage has first appeared, and the change in 10 years from there from 1900 to 1910 was dramatic. And I feel that we're on the cusp of the same sort of thing, that we're going to see massive change in this industry. But thanks so much for coming in. I want to thank you all. Dave Andrea, the Executive Vice President of Research. Brett Smith, the Co-Director of Manufacturing, Engineering, Technology. Bernard Sawicki, Senior Automotive Analyst, all from the Center for Automotive Research. Thank you for your time. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. I want to thank all of you for having tuned in.